I want to scream. I want to bang on things. You know, Sasha in The Seagull, who's crying and drinking and pining, like that's all a part of me. I'm so lucky that I get to just, you know, take my crazy and bring it to work. Bang, bang, boom, done. Somehow when I get off stage, I can just leave it there or so I tell myself. Unfortunately, your body doesn't know the difference mm -hmm. between when you're crying and sobbing and being tense on stage. Like your body thinks that actually happened to you, even if your brain doesn't. Hello, hello, and welcome to High Low with Amrata. I hope you all had a great weekend. I'm excited to be back on Tuesdays. This is our guest episode. We have every Tuesday somebody on. Today I have a friend that I've known for a long time. I'm very excited about. If you're new to the show, Tuesdays, guest episodes. Thursdays are the solo episodes. I call them Amrata Asks. I pose a question and talk about them. This is a show where we try to marry highbrow and lowbrow. We go from TikToks to dating advice to talking about books we love and everything in between. There's also a subscriber episode, which I highly recommend. It's how we build community. It's called the Talk Back episode. Um, I play audio notes and messages from you all and respond to them. So if you haven't, go to hilo.fm submit your audio notes. We discuss the things that have come up on the podcast this week and all of that. So let's get into my guest for today. She's someone I met very early on in my career. We kind of immediately connected. She is an extremely accomplished actress, writer, model. She walked nine shows last season. She has one million projects coming out, literally. I've seen her in two plays in the past six months. But I've actually seen her in three plays overall. I saw her in Jeremy O'Harris, another episode um, that I highly recommend everyone listening to, the writer of Slave Play. This was his other play, Daddy. And I saw her in Dennis Johnson's play and then a really amazing adaptation of Chekhov's sequel last night. My guest today is Hari Neff. Stay tuned for more High Low with Emrata. Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. When did we meet? I'm trying to think. It was a long ass time ago. Like I want to say 2015 or something. So I've been a fan for a long time. I also just, not just a fan and the career wise, but I just really like Hari, which is nice um, because, you know, you don't always feel that way about everyone that you're fans of. Um, <laughs> True. You don't, you know, but I would like sit down with her and talk shit any day. Um, <laughs> she is an accomplished actress, writer, model. She rose to prominence as a model, IMG, all of that. But um, a lot of people know her from Transparent, which she is incredible on. Um, she's also starred in several other movies and TV shows and the film Assassination Nation, which you were incredible in. I feel like you're, you're just naturally like political and you're outspoken, which... Yeah. We can talk a little bit more about. I kind of started as like the outspoken girl because I felt like I had to be, but I don't really speak publicly about anything related to my identity or my community. I mean, like I make jokes and I don't shy away from addressing it, but I've learned to do the advocacy in a way that is 
more private and less vulnerable. Tell me about that, because I do remember sort of when you first started out, in some ways I feel like you were used to represent yeah. things. Yeah, I was used, but also I showed up. I mean, I turned like a recurring guest role on a hot button TV show about trans life. I turned that basically into a much bigger Hollywood moment than a normal recurring guest absolutely actor would get because I was just talking, 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 talking. And I think at that point the show wanted me to. But I also found like, if that's the first thing that people think about when they hear your name and because of the world we live in, that's kind of what it got to be. And probably for the most part, what it still is, I kind of just dialed it back. And I'm like, look, there's only so much space in people's minds. And I'd rather just be seen and acknowledged and booked, respected Mm -hmm. for what I do and how I do it. Like, oh, she's a great actor. Not like, oh, she's so inspiring. That's kind of where I would like to move. Well, you don't want to be just booked because of what you represent or like what the casting means. You want to be booked because you're a full person who has talent. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's easier said than done. And I think I have a pretty realistic idea about what comes with the territory. Like I understand that there are significances and there are a lot of people looking and watching and waiting, but it's kind of like my personal life, even though in other ways I'm a public person. And I realized that- What do you mean it's your personal life? I mean, it's just this very personal thing about me that unites me to, you know, a lot of other people, but like actually not really a lot of other people. It's, you know, we are kind of just this minority. And I don't know. I realized that I don't have to repost infographics and speak out about the things on you know, Twitter or, you know, what's going on in the country or whatever. I don't have to do all that. It's exhausting. It opens up conversations that are not relevant to, quite frankly, the things that I believe I was put on this earth to do. I'm good at like three things and I want to do those three things. What are the three things? Acting, writing, and vibes. Mm. Oh, your vibes are good. Well, your vibes come into your acting. I don't mean like my energy. Mm. I mean, just like, oh, that wall color is like, mm. oh, or like, oh, remember that reference from that? It's, you know, like like clothes, Mm. like like gay stuff. Yeah, you are quite good at it. I just started following your secret account. (laughs) My secret. I won't say anymore, but there are so many good takes and I'm like, fuck, I love this. Even just, there was, it's something you wrote about how there were so many skinny girls on the runway this season and about how fashion brands tried to cover diversity even though they had no body diversity. And um, I was laughing because I was like, it's 100% true. And then there was a cut article like three days later basically on that. And I was like, somebody hacked Hari's private Twitter and like is stealing ideas for... I actually... There are a couple like journalists who follow me who are like mutuals, but also like it's kind of people that I haven't hung out with. I may or may not have done like a mini reaping the other day of just like, you're not interacting with the posts and I feel like you're just kind of reading them and it's like no shade, you're really cool. But 
sometimes you just gotta like kick a couple people off the private account. Oh, and I like, do that sometimes. Yeah, like change cha change your picture, change your handle. Mm -hmm. That's how you do it. Well, they're stealing your talent, your vibes. Well, yeah, I mean, their vibe I curation. I actually don't think anybody stole anything, but but it's it's just sort of like yeah, I I noticed on the runways that. And actually, I saw something on Twitter today, like the top five walkers of the season were all women of color. And I think three out of the five of them were, you know, very tall, gorgeous, thin, dark skinned black girls, um, you know, with natural hair. And like, you know, for, for that to be kind of like the girls who are walking the most shows, that's kind of fab. Mm -hmm. It's very fab, actually, because I remember I used to follow these things on the fashion spot when I was like a little live journal teenage nerd. And like the top walkers of the season, they used to walk like 70 shows. Now they yeah. only walk like 30. And it was just like all white Russian girls. And of so course. one step forward, two steps back. I think the body thing, it's not really my battle to fight or my thing to speak out on from personal experience, but it really did feel like there was a moment happening where there was body diversity, but mm -hmm. at the best shows, it didn't feel like a stunt. It just felt like these girls are the girl and they fit it. Yes. And they just happen to be mid-size or plus size. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there was a scaling back this season. Thin is in, Y2K, hip yeah. bones. I mean, oh. We've walked shows together. And I'm curious, you were talking about like just being a person as an actor, an actress, like just who wants to work and whatever. But with fashion, it is sort of about what you represent. Like that is, it is just one, this very kind of surface level thing. And I always think about that because people ask me about fashion and about diversity and about how meaningful it is. And, you know, a lot of times I point to the fact that most fashion companies are still, or almost all of them are ultimately run and owned by white men. So yeah. the diversity doesn't really whatever. But when we're talking about beauty standards and we're talking about whatever, fashion is surface level. It is about the look. It is about what you're saying is beautiful or cool. How does that feel? Like, do you hate that or do you kind of like it? I mean, because when we walked J.W. Anderson together, you fucking got in character. I watched you. You were like, okay, this is who she is. <laughs> and then you gave it to me. And I swear to God, my walk was better because I was in character because of you. And when you, you did like nine shows in September or something? Yeah, yeah, I did very unexpectedly. I, I'm happy. I love it. I love it too. I mean, that's the thing that I like about Runway. I like it so much better than sitting front row because when you're doing Runway, you are playing a character and it's not actually just about how you look. It's about how is this person going to walk into the room wearing these clothes? The fact that there is that gesture of personality and attitude that exists almost exclusively in a runway show unless you're doing like, you know, a fashion film. Remember fashion films? Anyway, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the body in motion through the clothes, I think, is what liberates you from just feeling stuck in the look. When you're sitting front row at a show, it's you're you, yeah. but it's like not you. You're in an outfit that more often than not was chosen for you or you chose from five options and they've got your name on the list and they're just like, oh, where does she belong? And that judgment process is never really made by people who know you. Mm -hmm. I don't really think the designers consult on that. Unless well, you're not a part of the production in any way no. and in the vision. You're, you know, representing kind of yourself and there'll be, it's like going to an event. It doesn't feel like you're a part of the show. 
I like to be a part of the show. Yeah, you do. I just saw you in two plays <laughs> the past six months. You have so many things going on. It's actually, it was really nice though, because there's all these kind of film moments that you have coming up that I want to get into between HBO's The Idol and then Barbie Major. But in the meantime, you're doing theater. And I was just thinking about how, talk about the personal and like being fulfilled and mm. what is, why have you gone to theater? What do you like about theater? Let's talk about your journey with theater. Well, theater was where I came from. It's where it all started. I was never a child actor or anything, but I did, you know, after school theater at the JCC, Cutie. you know, in middle school. And then I think in high school, you know, I grew up in, you know, a suburb of Boston called Newton, Massachusetts. And, you know, it's like high taxes, good public schools. And I went to public school and there was like good theater programs after school, a great theater, um, you know, production unit, good, good teachers. I also did the speech and debate team. You know, if, if you really wanted to like, see if you could give it like that, there was opportunities. Um, so I just kind of did as much of it as I could. And then I went to school for it. And you and went to Columbia, I, right? Yeah, I went to yeah. Columbia and I got my little BA degree in theater with a concentration in acting. My senior thesis senior year was actually The Seagull. I, I, it's not my first time doing The Seagull. Which, which is the adaptation I saw you in last night. Yeah, it's my second time doing that show. Not the same adaptation that I'm doing now. But um, yeah, I mean, before I... I'm so happy I get to do this play now because it's directed by Scott Elliott. Prior to graduating, Scott had actually cast me in an off-Broadway show oh, at wow. that theater. And it was this thing I was so excited to do. And then I got transparent. And I had wow. to make like, you know, sign your name in the devil's Hollywood book. And I left the show and I went to go do the Hollywood thing. So being able to come back and do a show with Scott is fab. But what I like about theater most is that no one yells cut you aren't like sitting around with your latte, like waiting for your coverage or to do this. You're not in your trailer. Once rehearsals are over and the play is up, you show up, you do it and you leave and you have to do it over and over and over again. It's deep and it's rich and it's extremely scary. And you only have one take per night. You can't do take two of the scene. So whatever crunchy bits emerge and they always do, you just have to push through it. But also, I don't know, I'm a little kinky in that way. I like having all those people look at me. Mm -hmm. It makes me feel like I can reveal something. It's something about the event of it? Something about the event and the spectacle and the tension and the tightrope. It's, it's sort of like what I was saying about runway versus sitting front row. I feel so comfortable like letting my personality show when it's like, here is look 34, not like Hari sitting front row. When it's like Hari sitting front row, you know, I'm like sitting there like a randomized sim, like, what am I doing here? Who am I? What's going on? No, Almost because you don't have a direction to a character to play or? It's vulnerable. You're exposed. It's like, yeah, I don't have a character to play. I'm so much more comfortable showing the crunchy bits of my soul when there's, you know, a little invisible sign over my head saying like, this isn't her, she's doing a character. Or like, this isn't her, she's walking so in So interesting because I do think you obviously 
you serve looks and you serve an energy. That's why when you said vibes, I was like, yes, you do bring a vibe to you wherever you go. But you're also really genuine and very much connected to your authentic self. So it's interesting to me that you kind of feel more comfortable when you're acting in some way because you're not as your friend. Like I get that, but I'm also like, yeah, but Hari's also Hari. There's some actors, you know, who just like don't give much when they're or they all they do is act and it's like, oh, Jesus Christ, like, please give us a break in their real life, you know? And I feel like you very much are grounded in who you are, but then also have this interest and enjoyment in performing. I love it. And it's it's the arena where I can kind of use the things that really aren't useful to me in my day-to-day life. There's this amazing profile of Julianne Moore, I think in The New Yorker. I think the title is something like A Beauty and a Beast. And it basically writes about how Julianne Moore plays all of these chaotic women on the verge, deep emotion, deep anguish, you know, drama, drama, drama. But her personal life is very serene and lovely. And it's kind of a portrait of a woman, if I recall correctly, I haven't read it in years, who's found a way to harness her chaos and her darkness and her tension and her explosivity and compartmentalize it all for her creative work so that there's not really bleed over into her personal life. Not like she acts as therapy, but... But there's an outlet aspect to it. Yeah. I mean, you know, in Des Moines, when in that moment in the show where it's all crumbling and we're all kind of like screaming and banging on things... I carry that energy around with me every day of my life. I want to scream. I want to bang on things. You know, Sasha in The Seagull, who's, you know, crying and drinking and pining. Like, that's all a part of me. I'm so lucky that I get to just, you know, take my crazy and bring it to work. Bang, bang, boom, done. Somehow when I get off stage, I can just leave it there. Or so I tell myself. Unfortunately, your body doesn't know the difference Mm. between when you're crying and sobbing and being tense on stage. Like your body thinks that actually happened to you, even if your brain doesn't. So there's definitely as needed self-care that you've got to call it, especially when I shot this horror movie last year, which is um, it's going to make a festival premiere this summer, but it's still kind of under wraps. It's like, you know, I was screaming for my life, running from someone who wanted to kill me. And I made a sound that I've never made before in my entire life. And I realized after, like, that scream exists in me every single day of my life. And what a mitzvah that I get to let it out. Well, it's amazing to accept for dollars, (laughs) period. I think it's there's something. Not very many dollars. Well, I'm sure theater isn't like, you know. No, honey. I. (laughs) That's not where you're getting the check. (laughs) I'm not really getting the checks right now, babe. (laughs) But you got plenty lined up. I have faith. My agents keep telling me to hang in there. I just like haven't been available for like, right. you know, the money moments over the past like six months because I've just been doing this. Fingers crossed there's something on option now that would solve a lot of my problems. Okay, great. <laughs> that sounds exhausting, but it was really just the process of like your body experiencing these things and then having to recover from it. We'll continue with Hari after this break. 
Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. I want to talk to you about the idol. Can we talk about the idol? Yeah. Okay. I think. I don't so, know. <laughs> Sam Levinson's new show yeah. is coming out. It's premiering at Cannes. That is out. That news is out. Yeah. And that's exciting. I've heard a lot about the show's creative evolution yeah. and the production, and I want to know what your experience was like with it. My experience was, by and large, positive. I would not have been there if I didn't really want to work with Sam again, because I was coming right off of Barbie. I flew right from London to LA. I was exhausted and I just really wanted to do it because there's no one on TV who's making what Sam is making. And I was there for about a month. I shot only really like a handful of days. The schedule kept changing. There were elaborate kind of Tetris-like scheduling things around Abel the -hmm. weekend and his tour schedule. Also around Jenny, who's, you know, a global superstar. So is Abel, but I think he was touring mostly like in like North America at that point. COVID. Mm -hmm. So things were changing around a lot. Scripts were changing around a lot. Sam works in a way that is very felt and quite extemporaneous. Mm -hmm. You know, we would be given scripts and then we basically stopped getting scripts and just started getting our sides. And then we'd get there and Sam would just encourage us to improvise. And I think the bulk of, I haven't seen the show, but from what I I hear, you. you know, a lot of what wound up in the show was improvisational. So Sam was definitely playing fast and loose with just like, making the show Mm -hmm. and every day on set was super full and super inspiring and i had a lot of fun doing it frankly that's great even though you know like i thought it was going to be you know more and then i thought it was going to be less and then it was this and then it was that but at the end of the day i i hear it's really fab but you know showbiz especially in the pandemic era is chaotic i mean we were shooting on film cameras you know like sam was just like running the film camera on film cameras damn yeah no for yeah. real like mm. he i think one time he left it running for like 48 minutes and we just like improvised this entire thing wow so that improv- that must have been fun as an actor right no it was so fun and like that improvisational nature i think feels really full for, you know, the creative team. But, you know, I think at certain moments, like probably people were scrambling and, you know, the crew and like, I don't know. I didn't observe any kind of untoward behavior or energy on set. The changes in schedule were really difficult, but quite frankly, I've experienced that on every other shoot that I've done, okay. primarily because of the pandemic right. and COVID mm-hmm. and people getting positive and mm-hmm. them needing to switch the schedules around. And they were already working on, you know, I think a condensed budget because of the reshoots that everybody knows about. So, you know, like that's kind of just what filmmaking is and you know you totally. fo- you follow my trap twitter i'm just like it's showbiz mm-hmm. like this is you're the ultimate you should actually do a little like this is showbiz baby 
here's the advice that I would give a young coming up person who's interested in entering it. I mean, I don't even feel established in that way, but like- Well, you're very much a working, I think a lot of the girls are showing up and to the events, but they're not booked. <laughs> and we talked about this in- It's been the opposite. I'm invited to the events, but I can't go to none of them. But that is so chic and, and very cool. And also I think, probably both personally fulfilling and also going to provide longevity and is strategic and smart. But can you speak about that a little bit? Because you said something to me about, what is it, the 10,000 hours where you just, the more you audition, the more you act, yeah. the more you're like, you just get those hours and then all of a sudden something happens. Is that what you feel happened for you? I, I was literally asking this yesterday. I was like, I wonder if I've hit my 10,000 hours. Did I do it? Have I done it? I don't know if I have. I might have if you count like whatever I did when I was a kid, but, but I wasn't working professionally. So there's levels. Honestly, this is relevant to what we were talking about before about that, you know, moment of visibility popping out transparent. That was a lot of click, click, flash, flash, event, designer, magazine, that being this like revolutionary thing that was happening, which wasn't really that revolutionary at all. And it wasn't really as much about the work that I was doing. Right. It couldn't have happened without me giving a really, in my opinion, solid debut performance mm -hmm. and transparent. I wouldn't have had any of that without that. But that, but it was just this little thing that turned into this big thing. And I kind of got caught up in the sauce of that. It was like mm -hmm. all about, you know, but I, I was caught up in it because I thought that it was what I needed to do in order to, to be a player. Right, to be successful. In, yeah, to be successful. And I thought that, you know, it's like I went to the Emmys twice and I was nominated for an ensemble SAG award. And like, this is the beginning of the rest of my life. And I'm, I'll be at the Oscars in three years. Like, no, that didn't happen. Because what actually has to happen is you need to become experienced and mm -hmm. you need to shut up and you need to hunker down and get your life right and stop like twisting your psychic energy into a tortured mangled mess because you're going out in front of the firing squad cameras all the time and giving interviews about the most personal things you've ever gone through. And you can't really succeed as any kind of creative person if like those are the things throbbing in the center of your life and your consciousness. And so like, you know. Well, that becomes a full-time job. It's like, I'm I'm fully like, you know, C-list at best at this point. But people, especially if you're queer and online, like know who I am. It's like, I've been working, I've been out here, but like, it's actually been this gradual process of like, okay, she had the big pop out. She's done some things that people saw, but like I hunkered down for a second and I didn't work for years. And I had to just sit back and do the work and like make a bunch of bad self tapes and then kind of get better at them because I did them more. I was also really snobby at the beginning. I was like, I started with Transparent. I started at the Emmys. I don't want to go back from that. Mm -hmm. And so I would just like turn down stuff. Also, I was so quick to get offended on like, this isn't good representation. This isn't, you know, blah. like, you know, I was, I was snobby and choosy. You should be choosy to a certain extent, especially if you have a point of view. But right around the pandemic, I basically just started auditioning for everything that came my way, unless it was like egregious. Cause I was like, you know what? I want to act. I don't care what it is. And, you know, even with Des Moines, the play that I did earlier, I played a trans character 
very kind of psychedelic, hallucinatory vision of a trans person. So was everybody else in the show. But, you know, certain actresses probably would have read that and been like, oh, no, this is no bueno representation. This is not it. And I thought that the play was so interesting that I could do something with it that was more than what was on the page. And that's what I tried to do. I tried. I think you were successful in that. Thank you. Yeah, she felt very three-dimensional and specific in a in an interesting way. When I was writing the book, there was a Joan Didion quote I put as a background in my phone that was like, basically like shut up and work harder and try harder. And that was, I can't remember, I'm butchering it, but it was the background of my phone and every time that I would feel whatever. It's like, you have to just let go of, I think that, you know, actually as a line from the play, like I think Parker Posey's character says something about like, everything today is about making a splash and you have to focus on not making a splash and doing the hard work. We will be right back with Hari Neff. Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. What about the Barbie movie? How did that audition, that casting take place? What's the story? Well, I was um, shooting a horror movie in Ithaca, New York in the dead of winter. It was like seven degrees out. By day, I was like running around a hotel, like crying and screaming and having paranoid thoughts in character. And then this audition came through and I'm like, ha ha, ha ha, ha ha, ha cool. What does that mean? Um, What's the ha ha ha? Ha 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 is when this got announced, I was like, wow, that would be the coolest thing that ever happened to whoever gets to be in this movie. I actually fully tweeted. You can like find the tweet. I like, Jeremy O'Harris tweeted like, Hari, you have to audition for this. And I was like, does Barbie have like a college educated brunette friend? Like, I was like, you know, begging for scraps. I don't know. I don't think that's why I got the audition. I think it was a really wide net that they cast. I mean, what I heard was like all the girlies went up for it. That's amazing. Like, I love that. I heard that like- Literally everyone. No shade, but like, No, no, I love that. All the girlies went over. That's nice when and, you're hard earned, um, <laughs> part, you know? It was one scene, no script. They did, there was included a, a very specific section where it was like everything in Barbie land is real to the people who are there, which was a call, I think, not to be like exaggerated mm -hmm. and like, you know, like, no, 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 no. Like, I think that I was thinking about it just as much. I'm auditioning for a Greta Gerwig movie as I'm auditioning for the Barbie movie. Right. Which is smart. And I made the tape with my co-star in the film, Gail Rankin, in my hotel room on a lunch break. And I got the part just from the tape. No wow. call, no callback, no screen test, no chemistry read. It was just one of those miracle things where like the tone that I identified fit what Greta was looking for. And then I was going off to LA to shoot the LA Law pilot, which did not go, RIP LA Law. And basically like before I left, my agents were like, okay, like you got Barbie, but you're contracted to do this pilot. Oh no. And the scheduling is really hairy. 
and we don't know if we can make this work because you signed this contract. And I was like, fuck. And so what I did was I wrote a letter. I wrote a letter to Greta Gerwig, Margot Robbie, and the casting director, Allison Jones. And I was like, thank you. I love you, yada, yada, yada. I really need to do this movie. And here's why I need to do this movie. I what would, did you say? I said, I would like to talk about the word doll. Wow. I would like to talk about the word doll and what that word means for me. And, you know. That is brilliant. Bringing it back around, it's like, I'm not gonna like open up the trans conversation unless I really need to. And I was fully like, okay, what is a doll? It's a fake woman. It's the shape of a woman. It's a perfect woman. It's a plastic woman. It's also this word that me and my other straight trans girlfriends use to kind of refer to ourselves in a sarcastic way. Right. But also it's dead serious. Yeah. It's like a reckoning with the standards that we're held to. It's also, you know, claiming ourselves as an ideal, but it's like, you know, it's it's a joke. It's like the dolls, like it's it's kiki voice. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, in in that word goes all the way back into ballroom. It's like, you know, from black queer culture. I think doll historically is like also a word, you know, it's 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 a specific kind of trans woman. She's probably straight. She possibly does sex work. Now I'm quoting this book that I'm reading written by Mackenzie Wark. She kind of like does like a taxonomy of doll. You know, doll is a word that's, that's thrown around. And I'm like, you know, like doll is, it's this poison thing that's like glamorous, but, you know, confined in a box. And it, it, it's, it, why is And this... discarded and not treated with respect. No, and it, yeah. And this is the word that me and the girlies have chosen to throw around mm -hmm. in relation to ourselves. And like, what's going on with that? So this is all in the letter you wrote to- This is, based, this is a paraphrasing of the letter I really I wrote. want this to be a published essay about the <sighs> word doll and your experience playing a doll. So, so I was basically like, look, like no doll is more important or globally renowned than Barbie. And I think that there is glamour and fun and celebration in this word and definitely in this movie for sure in this brand but there is something kind of ambivalent and twisted if you actually think about what a doll is and i also said you know knowing what i know about you know you greta you Margot, i don't imagine that this movie is going to shy away from these tricky little things mm -hmm. i don't think we're gonna sweep that under the rug i have a feeling that you can go, that you're gonna go in there. And A, I would love to be a part of it. And I don't think I wrote this in the letter because I didn't want to you know, manifest a negative outcome, but I had another letter ready to go where I was like, if it's not me, please cast another trans girl. Mm. There needs to be a doll. In here. the movie about the ultimate doll. Yeah, mm -hmm. there just should be. So what was their response? Other than obviously giving you the part. But did you have continued conversations about the concept of a doll? Their response was them allowing me to get there like a week and a half late and shoot the movie. Amen. 
Good for you. That's another great lesson for people who are aspiring. I mean, that is an extra, a lot of people would throw up their hands. I think writing a letter like that to, you know, a dream director, a dream cast is really intimidating. And I would probably be a little bit like, oh no, is this going to come off the wrong way? Will I be capable of really whatever? But it sounds, you were able to do that. Yeah, it's, I, I, I wanted the movie so bad. I didn't even know what role I was auditioning for. I didn't know. You were just like, I should be a part of this because I understand this idea and it's a part of my personal identity and I want to investigate it in a cool way. Yes, all of that, but mostly like I want to investigate this in a cool way. Mm -hmm. And and I trust that this team was going to do that. And that's for sure, I think, what we're going to see. I read and also have known that you have played a lot of bitchy characters. Mm -hmm. And I read that you said in this audition, and actually last night I felt like the character was a little bitchy, but she also kind of softens and gets worn down in this really vulnerable way, that you didn't read the character for Barbie in a bitchy way, which is why you got the part. Yeah, no, I, that was a part of that little like thing that I read in the casting notice of like, these are real people. They're not this flattened, like plastic, you know, when, when people think of the Barbie brand, they think of hyper femininity. And so therefore they think of bitchy or vapid or out to lunch or like super bossy or, you know, I, I misogyny, basically. I mean, that's it's kind of the thing with acting. Like you, you can always just take something at face value and take a person seriously especially a woman, like whatever she's saying, there doesn't have to be any irony to it. I, I, I think I think irony is the is is sort of the thing. My friend Sarah Nicole Prickett wrote in this amazing essay that she wrote about Lana Del Rey and ultraviolence like many, many years ago, I think for N plus one, like what could be more feminist than believing every single thing a woman says about herself? It's something I think about a lot, even on this podcast, because just we have so, um, people are so quick to write off the guests and anything they say, and not only because of the content of what they're saying, but also how they say it. And it is really difficult for me because I've just, I thought of myself as somebody who could identify misogyny and knew how rampant it was. And since the podcast has come out, I'm like, oh, it's so much worse. It's 3,000 times worse. Um, and, you know, the whole ambition of this podcast being high low is the idea of like kind of like identifying um, how we think of femininity so often as this like lowbrow, anti-intellectual, naive, ditzy bimbo thing when actually it just isn't. And it's it's going to be a long journey is what I'm discovering. But I wanted to ask you on that same vein, because you are good at vibes and because it's the theme of the podcast, high and low picks. I think the high pick for right now is just the book that I'm reading. It's called Raving. It's by Mackenzie Wark. I've seen her a couple of times at the raves. Um, you know, she's in her 60s, I think. And, you know, she's transitioned later in life and she was, you know, a part of the party culture in and out of it, you know, in the 90s and 
80s, both in New York and I think also in Australia. And she is writing kind of an ethnographic account of kind of underground queer techno scene in New York right now, which is flourishing. And she writes, um, you know, very kaleidoscopically, but also academically about like what a rave space is and, you know, what the music does. She writes about this idea of letting the music fuck you, but also the way time changes your relationship to time changes on certain drugs and things expand and protract and there are intimacies and people bring so many things to these party environments, these thorny, intimate desires for release and for love and maybe for sex. You know, in the grand scheme of things, I'm a weekend warrior. But like I came up through the warehouses in throwing raves in Brooklyn in like 2012, 2013. Like, you know, that's where I was performing. That's where I was. What do you like about it now? Like what what is what does rave culture and that culture give to you now? It's anti-hierarchical. And you and I were both in New York and going out during kind of like, you know, the up and down One Oak era of like, you know, door policy, bottle service, Manhattan, exclusive money, money, money. It was because it was right when Instagram came out and people, you know, there stopped being secrets in New York City and people started finding things out very quickly. And I think, you know, it, and it, it was so about like the fashion party and the seated dinner. Cool people, whether they're like, you know, young and underground or they're like, you know, live in Manhattan and have cool culture industry jobs, like they want to be at the thing that feels like real and underground and authentic. It sounds so corny and it is so corny. And quite frankly, this scene will probably befall the thing that happens to every other New York scene, which it gets too big or it peters out and Mm. then people go, you know, it's it's culturally mediated desires are just dictating what we want to do on our nights off. It's it's a space to release and to feel music and to feel, you know, communion, both platonic and sexual with people with people who are there to move their bodies, not to be seen. You know, a a lot of these parties are putting like stickers over your phone, kind of Berlin style. You think about like people going out in Hollywood in the 90s and how you, you know, you see pictures of the celebs from that time just like out, like getting wasted. It, It like I, you know, that's what you should be doing when you go out. You should be letting loose. And it's so easy to feel like you're on display living in New York and trying to have a nightlife. It's the end of privacy. It's little birds, you know, but I will say it was, it's funny talking about this with you because at the Oscars after parties, like there are no phones and there's no pictures. And I was like, oh my God, I haven't had this much fun. And I don't know how long because nobody was watching. It was like mostly other famous people. Or if you weren't a famous person, then you understood the whatever. And people were letting loose and it was wonderful. And I was like, man, I wish this was every, I wish this was my experience when I went out in general. I mean, I've been trying to go to rave with you for a minute. I've invited you. I know, but I'm a mother. I have to, I have to figure out like what, if I'm coming home at 7 a.m., that's when my son wakes up. So I'm going to have to figure that one out. It's about to be a Dakota Ellen moment. Like you were invited. (laughs) It's true. I was invited, but I was also like, I'm tired. I'm tired. But he's getting older and like I could miss a morning probably. Okay. Your low bout picks. 
What are your low picks? RuPaul's Drag Race. I know the like, like it's so popular and people love it, but like, I think I really need to come out right now. Like, I'm like a deep, 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 big old rotted super fan of the show. Like, I kind of just watched the first six seasons on loop. Oh, actually, okay. Maybe instead of saying RuPaul's Drag Race, what I really need to wake up right now is RuPaul's 2007 movie that I watched very recently called Star Booty. Wow, didn't even know it existed. Right. Directed by Mike Ruiz, or as he's frequently introduced on earlier seasons of Drag Race, celebrity photographer Mike Ruiz. Um, Before Drag Race, RuPaul wrote, produced, and starred in kind of this like low budget, extremely campy feature film called Star Booty about a supermodel of the world turned secret agent who has to go undercover as a transsexual sex worker to infiltrate a sex ring which has abducted her niece. I want to see this film and so badly. Like RuPaul is in it and the rest of the cast is like, it's a couple of drag queens. It's like a handful of like really, really gorgeous trans women. Amazing. Including Candace Kane, mm-hmm. who's a legend, Miss Continental. We love her. And then the other half of the cast is like gay porn stars. And like RuPaul says things in this that like you cannot even imagine him saying on Drag Race, you know, sex words, also sex work. <laughs> There are like dicks like in the movie. Like RuPaul is like holding a dick. There's like RuPaul 11... is holding a dick in. I'm pretty sure a there's a shot of RuPaul. Star yeah, I'm pretty sure there's a shot of RuPaul this is holding the most a deep dick. Cut, lowbrow, amazing thing. I mean, I actually think highbrow. Maybe uh, no, no. I very, think it is highbrow. This could have been in the highbrow category. I think it has the potential to be like showgirls. There, there's like a whole sequence of like RuPaul like while undercover as a sex worker, as a hustler. She goes home with like a leather sub who is like jerking off and she's like stepping on his balls with like her pleaser pump. And like, I'm pretty sure it's actually happening. Right. And, you know, I have, I love RuPaul. I think RuPaul is like it. I'm obsessed. The show he has made has like taken over my brain, especially when I'm doing theater. Like, I don't want to let any other like narratives into my body. So I just watch like reality TV. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, in a way, maybe I would like hold off from like even talking about Star Booty out of respect for RuPaul. What's interesting is it doesn't square with how like family friendly her brand is now. But her brand also became very family friendly in the early 90s mm. when she was, you know, going on talk shows and breaking out as supermodel of the world. So between those two moments of success, like before Drag Race, I think she was just kind of like, what's it giving? And decided to make this like gonzo john waters-esque there's a bunch of references to showgirls in it actually with like a bunch of transsexuals and gay porn stars and it's like the most insane thing i've ever seen okay i need to watch this and i i need it to blow up on tiktok and become a thing and then i need you to host screenings and also to write an essay about it i've literally talked about doing both of those things like in the near future can you please do that (laughs) also i just want to say in general I know you're very busy, but I would really like it if you started writing more, <laughs> please. <laughs> this is, thank you, because I was writing a lot when I wasn't acting and right. then I started acting a lot and I stopped writing and I really like doing both of those things. And I know that I'm supposed to be doing both of those mm-hmm. things. I think I'm still finding what the balance it's is. It's hard to do both. 
for me, it's like everything unto its season. Mm -hmm. You know, I know that, you know, waves of acting work eventually end and peter out. It's happened to me once and I know it's going to happen again. And during those moments is when I kind of get back to the laptop and the pen. I just think your cultural criticism and I and talent for vibes is something that is very rarely paired with uh, the scale for writing. So I think you should do that. Thank you. I mean, the, the ideal would be to combine what I do as a performer with what I do as a writer and maybe like write something for myself or write something for other people mm -hmm. to perform in. Well, I don't know if the cycle for the acting is really going to wind down because you have a probably the biggest show coming out and you're part of that. And then Barbie, which is just, I, I just like can't even wrap my head around what that movie is going to do to us. So I'm scared. Congratulations. <laughs> and thank you for coming on the podcast. I will continue to come to all of your plays. I really enjoy it. All right, everyone. That was Hari Neff. Huge fan of her vibes, quote unquote. I think she has a really great presence on the internet, particularly on Twitter. Even if you don't get access to the private account, I highly recommend the public one because she still gives hot takes and um, she's smart and very talented. And I feel like after Barbie and um, HBO series with Sam, people are really going to know who she is. I mean, if you don't already, which you should if you don't. There's a lot of things we covered in this episode today. I liked when we were talking about being a doll and that kind of letter she wrote to Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie. I'd love to hear from all of you about your thoughts on the episode. Go to hilo.fm. I'll be using those audio notes for the subscriber episode, Talk Back. Thank you all for listening. Hello with Emrata is a Sony Music Entertainment, Bitch Era Media, and Something Else production. Our executive producers are me, Emily Radikowski, and Sarita Wesley. And our associate producer is Rachel Choder. Today's episode was engineered by Samantha Gatsik with original music by The Crystal Pharaoh. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.